it's so quiet in the room that I can even start without the microphone being active yet. Ah, well, it is. There it is. Uh, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Oliver Bernath. I will head this uh, panel discussion of four uh, entrepreneurs in the uh, healthcare space. First, a couple of announcements. One is that um, this session lasts until 11 o'clock, and from 11 to 11.30, we'll have a break with coffee back in the foyer. Uh, just to fulfill the German stereotypes that I have to live up to, uh, I will finish at 11 o'clock sharp. <laughs> not earlier, not later, 11 o'clock. Um, Another part is that this is an open public session, so we're not in Chatham House rules. You, the audience, have the right to remain silent. The, order, the panel don't, uh, so you have to watch what you say since the session will be recorded and later potentially broadcast. I'll start with a personal introduction. Um, I'm, by background, a neurologist, uh, trained partially in this country, partially in the United States, and, of course, in Germany as well. Um, was a consultant neurologist, finally back in the United Kingdom, left, became a management consultant, and have then started um, Integrated Health Partners, pretty much to drive innovation of um, delivery of healthcare, uh, as our previous speaker mentioned, is quite important. I will briefly inter 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 introduce the panel, uh, but just sort of one health warning for you, in particular the ones that might be aspiring entrepreneurs. You have a panel here that represent different areas of entrepreneurship in med medicine, but in one we are very, very unusual, and that is that you have here four successful healthcare entrepreneurs. The road of healthcare entrepreneurship is littered with bodies left and, side and, and right in the ditch, so be careful not to think that uh, you have got a representative sample here. Uh, starting with uh, Andrew Gardner over there, he's the um, chief executive of Harmony. Uh, he will tell you a little later uh, in more detail as to what the innovation is, but uh, he has taken on the formidable challenge of herding the cats, and the cats are in this case the general practitioners, um, a population of fiercely independent people uh, that protect their practices um, with great vigor and trying to get uh, how many GPs do you have in your group, several hundred that mm. need to work in some way together. Uh, sounds an obvious task, but something that I obviously take my hat off. Um, then we've got Mike Stein, he's the medical director of Map of Medicine. Um, it's basically uh, an effort to put the medical processes and clinical practice into algorithms and a tree structure. Now, for non-medics, that may sound like an obvious thing to do, but uh, trying to get it done uh, is quite formidable. As the previous speaker says, the taxonomy of healthcare is so bad that if you try to make decision trees around it, you'll probably run into trouble very quickly, and he'll tell you about that in a bit more detail. Uh, then you've got Richard Darch. Uh, Richard started as an economist, uh, then became a healthcare consultant, and is, I find, is sort of landed in the world of infrastructure. Now, infrastructure is something that in entrepreneurs' business plans is often forgotten, uh, but uh, very much to your peril, because infrastructure is needed to make anything really happen, because you need a roof and, and a system around it that does it. And when it comes to writing business plans, you will find very quickly that the biggest capital layout is for infrastructure. So if you want to make it attractive for investors, then you may want to beef up the infrastructure section in your business plan. Uh, then we've got uh, Jake Arnold Foster. Um, he uh, started as a journalist and uh, created a company called Dr. Foster that many of you might have heard of that really is trying to extract 
information out of a huge amount of data that the NHS has. I often hear complaints of my medical colleagues how bad the information is, and we don't know this and don't know the other, that's true. But I've worked in multiple healthcare economies as a consultant and as a doctor, uh, and must say that the NHS is probably the data richest environment that's around there in the world, but one of the information poorest. Um, Jake has tried to get some sense in it. Again, uh, we are all sharing the optimism of, and the idealism of the crazy. That's why we're entrepreneurs, uh, and he will tell you how far he got in the, in the interim. May I just start with uh, Jake and go the other way around. Could you just introduce yourself and the organization, particularly with focus on uh, what's your role in innovation and what sort of, if you just name one of the main barriers, not to preempt sure. the discussion, what you would say that is. Okay. Well, I think the main in, uh, obstacle, of course, is the uh, clinicians themselves. Um, it's not a very radical thought, but uh, throughout the world, clinicians have high status and are pretty well paid. So uh, getting into business, in my experience, for doctors is actually quite a challenge. And uh, I often, I'm, I'm involved in a number of bi uh, businesses where doctors have come up with some brilliant ideas, some about statistics, some about information, some about technology, some about processes. And uh, one of the um, uh, common conversations I have with them is, uh, I'm afraid to say on a mobile phone, they say, I'm sorry, I'm in the clinic at the moment. I can't really talk to you. And so I think one of the, the obstacles I think we should discuss is how incentives work for clinicians to take great ideas uh, and turn them into something that can change the world. So that's my, my start of a 10. Okay. Richard? I think that, as, as you say, Oliver, I think uh, often infrastructure is, is ignored. Um, and... If I should, I suppose, reflect on the process of design and design of healthcare facilities, uh, it often involves asking users uh, and clinicians and professionals um, uh, some understanding of what they want in this brand new building. You saw an example early on with the, uh, uh, the, the new John Radcliffe. Um, and people's mindset is determined by what they, what they actually encounter now. So by and large, they will ask for, well, what I've got now plus a bit more. Uh, a bit more space and a few extra offices and a few extra bits and pieces and whistles and bells, rather than actually thinking about what is it I do, what, what, is, what is the process that I undertake on a day-by-day -day basis and how can that uh, have an impact on design. Uh, and one, one example which struck me and we've introduced uh, in, in one of our schemes here in the UK was a uh, hospital, of, in, in, it's actually Mass General in Boston. And uh, for, a whole, for, a, for a period of a number of months, uh, the nurses on the, on the ward were tracked, uh, wearing a sort of little lapel bottle. You could actually track where they were during the day. And um, you could actually put this on the screen in terms of with, with light panels, and you could see the concentrations of light of where they were during the day. And there was this intense concentration of light around the nurses' station. Uh, and it was quite clear that, that that was a comfort blanket. It was a comfort zone for the nurses, uh, and they huddled around the nurse's station. Now, if you look at what that is, the nurse's station is a construct uh, around having to have the, the records, the care records, uh, in one place, uh, followed then by a desktop computer in one place. With the technology that we have now, uh, with palm tops, with handhelds, uh, and with, eventually, in the NHS, electronic patient record, uh, you don't need to have that, 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 that facility, that amenity. Uh, and in Boston, they just they, they, they designed the ward and took it out. As you've got a palm top, you don't need to have a nurse's station. 
Um, you actually just take that out, out of the, out of the, um, the, the design. Uh, and nurses, all of a sudden, were spending that much more time with patients uh, because they had nowhere to actually congregate. They were spending more time with patients. They were spending more time uh, in, in, in the, uh, predominantly in, in, the, in the private rooms. Uh, and uh, lo and behold, length of stay came down, outcomes improved uh, because of the intensity and the greater intensity of that care. And that's, for me, it was an innovation in terms of how design can have such a positive impact on care and care delivery uh, and, and, indeed, outcomes to patients. Thank you, Richard. Thanks. I think the perspective that I'd like to focus on is the barriers to sort of entry, if you like, for docs getting into entrepreneurship um, that Jake talked about. Um, and just really reflecting on my own experience as a doctor. Um, and I think one of the key issues is being inside an environment uh, where you've got really forward-thinking leadership at the clinical level, where the clinical leaders are, in fact, people like uh, John Bell, who where I was a junior doctor here in this institution and actually was encouraged and to think outside the box. Um, I think with medical training, you go through a, a very rigorous, very detailed, very long process, and you kind of get invested in that process, and you kind of label yourself and categorize yourself as a doctor. And as Jake said, you, you get well paid in the long term <laughs> towards the end. Uh, you get locked in by a very uh, rewarding pension scheme. Uh, and I'll come back to that in a moment and how that can be a barrier to leave <laughs> uh, the NHS to do entrepreneurial things. But I think fundamentally uh, for myself, it was being part of an organizational structure, a medical school uh, like Oxford, which had leaders like uh, David Weatherall and, and John Bell. Uh, so I would say that for me was a, a lucky uh, event, so to speak. There wasn't really a much of a barrier for me to go out and do something quite different. Um, so that would be the, the focus, I think. Okay, yeah. Um, I, in 2004, um, I uh, saw that there was an opportunity in the market for um, the change in the GP contract and uh, went to see an organisation called Harmony. And Harmony are a GP cooperative in, in West London. They're a small organisation and uh, found some very, very entrepreneurial and uh, understanding GPs about what, what needed to be done. And, and that organisation was turning over about $3 million at the time. And we said, let's be really innovative about the way that we deliver services and what are the sorts of services we deliver. And we looked at all sorts of things and really put an innovative plan together. What we've discovered, actually, over that period um, is that innovation is not that helpful. What, what, what is helpful, I'm afraid, is, is, is a sales engine that can respond to tenders that the NHS send, sends out. And that's the last thing we wanted to do. We've managed to do that. We now have an organisation that turns over 80 million and looks after 8 million patients. So we've been relatively successful. But my, my real worry is that we, we are able to bring very little innovation to that because when the NHS come to us and say they want a service, very often they define it down to how many nurses they want in it, how many doctors they want in it, where everything will be. Now, we have innovative technologies. We have you know, a phone system that can link anywhere in the country. We have IT that could be really helpful to doctors and nurses. But actually, we're restrained in what we're doing. Hopefully now, as we've got to a critical mass, because I think, as Oliver said, actually the uh, you know, clinical businesses are, you know, are very often failing. And we've seen, even over the last few months, you know, a number of businesses that have failed in, in, in this world 
I think you have to get to, you have to, there's an expression, cross the chasm. I think now we've crossed the chasm um, where lots of companies fail. We may be able to be innovative, but I think the NHS is not welcoming innovation. The whole world-class commissioning thing, which is all about defining what is required, mitigates against innovation and entrepreneurship. Um, Thanks very much. Um, so far for introductions, we'll now go into a bit more of a discussion here on the, on the podium. And the objective really is to uh, explore what are the barriers for entrepreneurship, as the title says. I try to break it into two uh, sections, more or less. The one is really more generic, what are the barriers to clinical entrepreneurship overall? And then secondly, what are specific UK or NHS uh, specific barriers to innovation because the two are quite different although uh, we have to face both. Also uh, just to say we only have entrepreneurs here that work in a sense outside but then for the NHS so these are all organizations that are private, private funded private companies as such. There's obviously a lot of innovation entrepreneurship that one can do within um, large organizations like the NHS and in universities like, like yours. Uh, that obviously we don't want to say is not entrepreneurship or, or probably then called intrapreneurship or innovative, but this panel um, focuses particularly on um, small uh, companies that are outside the space as such. Now, taking on that theme, if I just sort of ask the panel and maybe I start uh, with, with um, Jake, um, quite often I hear sort of the criticism um, these are private companies, um, is it private investment, is it uh, money leaving the NHS and so on, although this is an NHS-specific topic, but I think it's a broader theme also in the overall healthcare world. Healthcare is an industry that has the moral conflict of making money out of people that are sick, and that obviously causes some tensions. Uh, but you know, what's your overall view of um, the role of you know, just private money and private entrepreneurship in the space of healthcare? Well, I'm, I'm a pretty dyed-in-the-wool uh, capitalist in that respect. You'd be unsurprised to hear. I, I believe that uh, innovation mostly comes from the private sector, whether it's in healthcare or any other uh, um, industry or community. And I think the NHS does suffer from more ideological baggage than almost any other um, part of the healthcare, the healthcare system in the world that I've seen, in the sense that it was born in 1948 out of a... Uh, 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 a different set of circumstances and I think that that does lead to huge barriers for entrepreneurs whether they're inside the NHS or, or outside trying to sell in and we've talked a little bit about how difficult it is to get the NHS to define outcomes um, for patients or, or, or uh, either in terms of clinical outcomes or, or, or satisfaction for patients when they're defining contracts so one of the issues, I mean, I advise a number of uh, small startup companies that try and get a foothold into the NHS with products or services, and they come across the same sort of catch-22 situation whereby they can't get onto a framework to sell their product into the NHS because that framework is defined for large companies, and uh, the NHS and the Department of Health in particular has framework procurement processes that say you have to be of certain scale before you can get it on the pitch and necessarily that mitigates against uh, innovation because most innovation comes from small companies and in one case there's a medical device which is uh, a brilliant little thing which is a, a midstream urine collection device designed by a doctor in, uh, in uh, East Anglia 
and, and it's a fantastic thing, but it's almost impossible to get it to market because you can't get it onto a framework because it's not being used in the NHS. You can't get it, you can't get it used on it by the NHS until it's on a framework. So that's a small example. I could give you many more of where the, the corporatism of the NHS, which is ideologically driven, but also driven by um, fear, uh, driven by the... Um, aversion to risk and to failure, which is ingrained in the NHS in particular, but of course in the whole clinical uh, mindset, for which most of the time we are very grateful uh, that doctors don't take risks with our health. But actually, uh, finding a better way of collecting uh, urine samples without having them retested, or uh, uh, delivering pedometers at a, at a practical price to thousands of people. These are the, the innovations, these small innovations that make big differences. And, and one thing, one particular hobby horse that I shall quickly canter around the paddock is the way that the NHS and indeed uh, universities cling to and control information, which really uh, um, it should be um, delivered uh, to uh, patients, to individuals as quickly as possible. Uh, the fear that um, the NHS has that providing, for example, information about what drugs are used where and what the price of those drugs are is to protect poor GPs from the marketing might of the pharmaceutical companies. And I know a few GPs, and in fact I know a lot of GPs, and I think they can probably look after themselves. And I think we as citizens can look after ourselves much better than the NHS uh, often assumes we can. This side of the podium, a uh, difference in opinion about um, <coughs> Mike and Nodding. I'd say, you know, I agree with Jake in respect of the, the challenges for small companies. I mean, we were a tiny company, <laughs> a company of two, <laughs> mm. um, back in 2001 uh, when we are, we actually are a spin out from University College London um, in partnership with a local NHS trust, the Royal Free Hampstead NHS Trust. Um, and it was an incredible challenge uh, to actually get airtime with an organisation the size of the NHS. Um, and we had a lot of, a lot of it was a lot of luck along the way. Um, but I'd say that <coughs> the, 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 one of the key issues was size. So when National Programme for IT started, we couldn't actually effectively bid mm. uh, in that programme, even though we had a very good idea. It's a very simple idea. As, as you pointed out, it's an obvious idea. Map our clinical processes. The, the world's largest healthcare organisation hadn't mapped its clinical processes. So we started doing that with UCL and the Royal Free Hampstead NHS Trust because there was a local need to do that for other reasons. Um, but so it was obvious when you said you're going to be putting in a big IT system. Well, IT systems don't put in computers unless you're going to automate a process. That's what IT systems do. Um, and unless you've defined your clinical process before you start, it seems an odd thing to put in huge billion dollar and billion pound uh, clinical systems before defining your clinical process. Um, but even something as obvious as that, I can't tell you <laughs> the challenges it was. And then people saying, well, you can't actually bid because you don't have financial backing of a sufficient scale. <clears throat> and UCL, being a charity at the time, and still is, uh, didn't want to risk the shop uh, putting £6 million into escrow in order to be part of the process. So we were, in fact, an enforced, if you like, spin-out from UCL and, and the Royal Free where it turned out to be really very good, and 18 months ago we were acquired by the Hearst Corporation in New York and you know, generated a very large sum of money um, 
I can't say the exact amount, but it's you know it's a well in excess of fifty million dollars for the exchequer, so to speak. Um, but <coughs> that's been a very long and tough road. Um, it's been since two thousand one till about two thousand and eight. I would suggest that that could have been shortened by about three and a half years at least uh, to deliver real value to the NHS, which we're now starting to deliver uh, by you know implementing clinical process on a wide scale across the NHS. But that is the key challenge, is the, the ability for small organizations to, to get into the system. And I think that's going to require some sort of change at a high level in the NHS, at the David Nixon level. Mm. I, I think that the NHS is very interested in innovation, particularly at the David Nicholson level. Uh, but it's translating that, that, those words, you know, we support innovation, mm. into practical policy and practical changes to the system that allow you to get into these framework agreements uh, with things that are good ideas. Yeah, and, 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 and creating a post called Director of Innovation in every strategic health authority in the country, and I'm not decrying those individuals, but creating that post and creating things called innovation hubs. As you, I mean, it doesn't take a philosopher to work out that that might not be the quickest way to encourage innovation. Um, innovation is not something you can direct. Can I maybe sort of sharpen the discussion as, as far as the focus of what, what we mean by or what type of innovation we're looking to hear more? I think we just had a very good, um, very interesting keynote speak, uh, speech where it was a lot about uh, scientific innovation on the genetics um, yeah. example, for example, which probably is more university driven or with examples of uh, exceptions of genetic, of course, where large amounts of capital are required. Now, there's also an element of innovation of actually changing bedside practice or defining clinical protocols, and that seems to me... Not so protocols, sorry. Um, processes. processes these are not about protocols. I'm sorry, I missed clearly a difference. Um, do you think there's a fundamental difference also between uh, the size or the, the, the type of innovation um, in terms of pharmaceutical companies typically spend now, what, $800 million on developing a new drug, so that's obviously much harder to fund in a small company versus bedside, bedside or clinical practice changes seem to be much more driven by spin-offs of professionals, uh, you are a doctor yourself, um, does that, does that, is that more of a field of, of, of a private company? And yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the challenges is, and you know, to me, in a sense, one of the, having been challenged, I spend too much on marketing, I, I, I would challenge the previous speaker on, there was way too much there on sort of technology and not nearly enough on process. You know, there was one small amount on process. I think the biggest challenge the NHS faces is, is process-oriented, is the pathways, is, is how it's run. You know, it's, and if we addressed a lot of the process issues, there would be a hell of a lot of reduction in wasted money. Now, one of the things that one, you know, is true from um, other worlds is that if you want to make process improvement, um, you don't do it on a small scale. You don't do small pilots. Um, there's some evidence that says you need to do what they call you know, big shitty projects because it's only on a really big project that everybody focuses on it and makes it happen. If you do a small pilot, then there isn't enough management attention to it and nothing happens. And I think we've got to see in the NHS you know, some collaboration between the private sector and the NHS and say, let's do something visionary, let's, let's go to Guildford and take you know, 80,000 GPs and look at how we radically change the pathways. Because if we try and do small things, we won't prove anything and, and nothing will change. And then once it's been done, and if a private sector company is doing something in, 
Guildford or wherever, then we're best at taking it around the country because the NHS are not very good at taking it around the country because there is this not invented here syndrome, isn't there? You know, you go to a PCT and say, we've been doing this in, um, in Hillingdon and they say, ah, well, we won't want to do it here then, so, you know, <laughs> tell us something else. You know, it's, it's bizarre, isn't it? Because typically you would say if you prove good, good practice in one place, they, they take it automatically. But I still think we should do much more work on the process side of things. And I, th I think I'd like to see much more research done on it and much more learning private sector could get from there. I'll have a look at my marketing budget, perhaps. Um, John should look at how much money he spends on process. I'll come on, on, on uh, two aspects, really. And, and, and I think, um, uh, as an economist, use two, two uh, favourite frameworks of, of, of economists. Firstly, that of, of, of cost-benefit. Uh, and you uh, mentioned, Oliver, some of the, the pushback in terms of uh, uh, partnering with the private sector and potentially leaking taxpayers' money into the private sector. Well, actually, that is about the value that's derived. It's not about the, the, the money that's actually leaking. If, if, if the idea is good and the implementation is good and it delivers added value back into the NHS uh, and in, in terms of that cost-benefit analysis, then I see no issue with that and, 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 and share Jake's sort of um, capitalist construct in, in, in that, that there is value that can be uh, mm. derived and, uh, out of partnering with the private sector. Uh, and secondly is, is, is one of incentives. Uh, unfortunately, there is a lack of incentives in the system for clinical entrepreneurship and innovation. Mm. Um, the ideas are there, um, but uh, the, 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 you get the value from the idea times the implementation. Uh, if the implementation is poor, then the idea is poor. And it's interesting, if, if you look at, uh, and for those who have been around, and I, and I, I think we are constantly a bit perhaps on the NHS, but for those who have been around the NHS for a long time, and we go back to the early 90s and the uh, adoption of GP fund holding, you had tremendous amount of clinical innovation and clinical entrepreneurship around that incentive system, because a set of incentives were actually put in place for GPs to do more, and if they were able to do more, and they were able to uh, do it more efficiently, then they had some share in that benefit, some financial share in their benefit within their practice. And that drove a significant amount of innovation. Uh, now, unfortunately, um, that, well, that, that construct was, was taken apart uh, in 97 uh, on, in the, um, uh, uh, the uh, Labour Party um, coming into government. Uh, and it took five years to take it all apart um, and take self-governing trusts apart uh, and, the, and, the, and, and that market apart. And then there's another five years of putting it all back together again um, and creating foundation trusts uh, and practice-based commissioning. Um, and there's still this, this I think, uh, from a policy term, there's, there's still uh, a lack of vision in terms of uh, how can we incentivize clinicians and professionals out there in the system to uh, 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 be entrepreneurial, uh, to actually implement uh, some of, of, of their ideas out there in the system. And there is that, that, there is that lack of incentives, there's a lack of support to enable, enable them to do that. And I think that's what the private sector can bring. It can very effectively partner with those professionals because it does it all the time. As Andrew was saying, it, 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 we have systems that actually uh, enable implementation of ideas because as private sector, if we didn't do that, then we go out of business. 
Uh, and that is something very, very powerful that could be brought in terms of partnering between private and public sector. Yeah, I, I'll just tell you a little, a few numbers. Uh, around half a million people die in England each year, something like 74% say they want to die at home. 18% uh, get that wish. Now, that's a kind of change uh, that I'd like to see, which is that people who want to die at home actually manage to die at home. That is not about a, a new widget or new drug. And part of the reason private sector money is focused, of course, on, on new drugs and on technology in particular is because you can patent it. And it's quite difficult to patent um, innovations and processes. But, but it seems to me that it is actually... Uh, the revolution in healthcare that we will, we will see is going to be driven by consumers. It will be driven by people saying, actually, I don't want to go into hospital uh, for the last week or month, six months of my life or go in and out of hospital by an ambulance, for example. I'm going to define where I die and how I die. Um, uh, and the, 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 the tools by which they're, they're going to um, get that done is actually political uh, and through information um, so that they, people realize what rights they have in relationship to doctors. And I, think, I don't think doctors uh, actually want to do anything other than empower patients to um, store information about themselves, to understand their condition, to manage their own conditions more effectively and manage their risks more effectively. I don't think doctors want to prevent uh, patients from, from having that information. Actually, I think it's patients are so fearful of death, as we all are, that they, that w they fear the information that will help them manage their own conditions. And it was interesting from um, John Bell's uh, talk about the possibility that uh, genome mapping will, will bring. Uh, we will know uh, the answer to that question, which we all fear. Would you like to know the day on which you die and the disease from which you're going to die? These are, these are the things that are fundamentally going to change uh, the NHS, I suspect. And I don't, think, um, I don't think that we can rely too much on the NHS systems to change. We can't really rely on primary care trusts to suddenly become uh, uh, um, attractive to risk. I don't think that's going to change. I think what will change are consumers saying, I'm not going to have this dependent relationship with, the, with healthcare any longer. We've had now a little bit of a somber spiral of uh, <laughs> discussing the um, great challenges of dealing with a monolith of the NHS to bring any into in innovation, particularly from a small company, into it, and talking about end-of-life care on top of that. Uh, let me try to um, make the focus a bit more uplifting. Can I ask the panel whether there are <laughs> any examples where actual innovation worked successfully in the NHS. Now, you all sit here because you obviously did something that was successful, otherwise you would have been out of business and they would have never get, gotten to know you. So could you maybe highlight wh where you think for the aspiring entrepreneurs here, uh, the motivation comes from how you would, if you, ha if you were the mentor, would say to a new entrepreneur, yes, there's a great opportunity and this is how you potentially can push it the highest. Andrew. Okay, I mean, I, I, I do think, as I touched on earlier, that it is about um, improving the way the processes and the pathways that are used for healthcare, and I suppose what we've done is is look at the way that um, an out-of-hours service is delivered is, is one of the main areas we look at, and we, we've tried to be very innovative in that. If you look at um, lean process technology, it says there should be no queuing, 
and how many of you run up NHS Direct and been asked to call back? Do you get a call back? You know, in a lot of out of our services, you know, you will get called back in a, in a period of time. And what we're looking at is saying, actually, you should, on the first engagement you get with the service, um, actually speak to a clinician and speak to the person that is going to resolve your problem. Because the earlier within the intervention you actually get to speak to someone who's qualified to know what your problem is, then the, the, the quicker it will be dealt with. Um, now, there are some big challenges in that because, you know, we get all our calls at 9 o'clock on a Saturday morning and therefore actually being able to deal with that with clinicians at that time is, is quite difficult, but we're putting in things like uh, GPs being able to work from home and having full clinical covenants um, and voice recording um, f from their homes. Um, so what we're trying to do is say, what is the way that the healthcare should be delivered? Let's put the technology in to support the clinicians and actually, like all these things, that's actually good for the patient, it's good for the cost effectiveness of the service and it's good for the clinical governance of the service. So I think you know, if you can get it right and you can put in good processes, it will be the right thing to do. It's just at times um, designing that in and, and, and getting that to, um, to work and, and actually doing the modelling to make sure when you do put that in, it is going to work because uh, when you're taking an awful lot of calls on a regular basis, if you, if you make a change and it's wrong, then you're going to have a lot of problems. Yeah. I, I would say that the, the key to the success of, of dealing with any large organisation is actually to find the champion or the champions inside that organisation uh, and then to really sell your idea to people who are influential. Not necessarily the chief executives, but actually often you'll find that people that are below, quite well below that level but are well respected and great influences. Um, in our case, it was a guy called Sumio Gray, um, who actually, although he comes from Oxford, I, I had never met him before, uh, but we were able to find out who the key influences are and go to those key influences and persuade them or talk to them and show them the idea. And then if they get excited by the idea, boy, that's a lot of energy that gets driven upwards, if you like. The other key fact, I would say, is that if you're going to design any product or service, make sure that you get the end users of the NHS, not the people who are paying the check, but the end users. They're very different. Uh, so not the commissioners, but the actual, in our case, it was uh, docs and nurses, uh, to actually help you design your product or your service. So originally, when we did the map, we actually got 26 general practitioners in a room with lots of hospital consultants and specialist Jeez. nurses. And actually, the <laughs> had to get an yeah. agreement there. And, yes. yeah. and, and in fact, to design that user interface, which originally didn't look anything like the map of medicine today. Um, and for anybody who's interested, you can go and look at that result. It's now freely available to all citizens of, of, of England and Wales on NHS choices. Uh, it's not the professional version, it's one that you can't localise. But that interface that's there uh, was designed by end users. If we had gone to the management uh, of the NHS and, and, and the commissioners of the NHS... You'd still be designing it now. Correct. Mm. So I, I hear there's some benefit of dealing with an organisation like the NHS that once you got in and get the right people excited, then it actually spreads quite fast. Yeah. Then you can reduce your marketing spend, I guess, in that point. Well, um, I think it varies different because I, st I think a product like Mike's, that's true. I don't think it's true for us oh, at all. Yes, yeah. So yeah. I think it varies greatly yeah. between what you're actually trying to do. Yeah. Mm. Can I take it a slightly a different spin for, for you two, Jake and Richard? Um, if you were an investor 
and you have to put in some money, or like we all probably did at the beginning, put in our own savings, being our own investors, at least to start with, the highest part of risk. Um, now, that's maybe a comforting thing to say, well, if we pass that threshold, then all of a sudden we have the large, large buy under NHS buys it all, but the threshold obviously is quite high. Do you think there's an opportunity or actually a real barrier to get funding for small entrepreneurs to get any, anywhere? Jake, if you... Well, I, I've been, um, as I'm sure we've all been, the tour around the private equity uh, yeah. houses recently, and um, they all say the same thing at any, any given time in history, which is we have lots of money and we want to invest it in this, in this space, as they call it. And, um, and they've got some very good reasons, which we saw earlier. You know, the demographics are in the right direction. Uh, and you get very good returns on some of these uh, investments. They're, um, you know, uh, it's, it's, it's a good bet internationally. So I think, I think the money is there. It's difficult always to find seed funding. So private equity houses, uh, venture capitalists, don't really want to invest in companies that haven't proved themselves. So that's a problem. That's a problem for a, every entrepreneur in every market. Um, but uh, there's no doubt in my mind that um, investing in what are called assistive technologies, um, technologies that allow people to um, communicate proper diagnostic information, to make connections between the professional and the consumer direct without going through the labyrinthine process of, meet, of waiting and um, paperwork that now obstructs the process is obviously uh, um, a good bet. And I would, if I was um, uh, advertising, but I'm not, uh, m mention a couple of co companies I'm involved in that I think got really exciting pro products in video conferencing and, and in uh, telehealth. But yes, I think there's a great uh, opportunity. Yeah, the barriers are high in the NHS. The, the disappointing thing is that actually what you do as a successful uh, entrepreneur in this market is you get in there and then you tell everybody the barriers to entry are really high. And that is a sad truth. You know, that's the way... Uh, uh, healthcare businesses thrive is by creating big barriers to entry for the competition. That's not the right way to do it because actually the market opportunity, you always hear capitalists say this, we actually want competition. No one ever believes you because you think, they think, I oh, know you just want monopoly. But actually the market opportunity is much bigger if the NHS, in our case, and I think this is true globally, were more open to private sector involvement in in what is a morally charged marketplace. There's no doubt about it, and quite rightly so. So, yeah, I think there's, I think there's huge um, uh, opportunities. And I, if there are any MBA students here who I understand they've got some exams quite soon, so there may not be as many as there should be in the audience, but if there are MBA students contemplating which market to go for, I mean, health is fantastically interesting, and you can make a lot of money out of it. There's no doubt about that. So you had your fair share of uh, uh, investing in capital and getting investment uh, for infrastructure projects. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it, it's still, I think I would, I would echo what Jake says, it still uh, remains an attractive um, investment class. Uh, and um, certainly those involved in, in, in infrastructures, uh, if, if um, you look at uh, something called the, sort of the property uh, database, property index database, in terms of values of properties here in the UK, um, uh, whereas um, uh, values out, uh, in the commercial and retail sector absolutely took a dive uh, in 07 uh, through 08. Uh, in healthcare, it's held up. 
Now, why is it held up? It's because, it's because predominantly uh, we're a, a, a social health care system, predominantly health care infrastructure is uh, used and leased by the public sector in either the NHS or GPs, uh, and they have a very good covenant. They, they can pay their rent. Uh, and if they can pay their rent, they're seen as a good bet, and that's attractive to investors. Uh, and we've actually seen quite a lot of money be, uh, look to be refocused into uh, this sector. Uh, but it's interesting. Um, it's all around trying to acquire existing portfolios of mm. property. Mm. Rather, and what we have found really difficult is actually getting investment for some of the new ideas that we want to try and generate in terms of different types of infrastructure. And that, all, that sometimes doesn't mean a building. It can mean a building plus some technology. It mm. can mean networking not only the individual with technology, but building with technology with the individual. That, we're finding, is really, really hard mm. um, because it, it, the, I think investors generally, uh, uh, given what they've gone through, um, are, are, are looking for safe havens. They're looking for things that they understand and they're looking for something which is generating uh, an existing yield, an existing profit, uh, which, they can, which they can measure. Um, so if you wanted to buy up uh, a portfolio of existing GP practices, or if, if there is, a, there is a, what is called a secondary market, uh, again, we had a private finance initiative hospital shown earlier, uh, where the revenue streams uh, which are paid to the private sector for that facility are, are, can be traded, that's very attractive. Uh, investors will certainly scramble to, to have some of that action. Uh, but in terms of trying to support and invest in new ideas and new ways of delivering service, uh, that, that we're finding really, really hard. Thank you. Maybe I'm aging myself um, when I refer to the movie Thelma and Louise, but maybe some of the audience can relate to it still. These two uh, entrepreneurial ladies that uh, drive in somewhere in the United States towards a cliff and uh, many have likened the NHS finances a bit like to the Thelma and Louise car right now. Um, it is said that 2010-11 is still one of the fat years in the NHS where there was still a five point something percent uplift of budget from the previous year, but that the years to come after that will become cold, chilly, Arctic, other scenarios that I've heard. Um, basically no further growth and although political parties say they won't take any money out it also means that they probably hold the spending flat uh, with a industry that sees over inflation growth simply because of the demographics and uh, healthcare expenditure it, it means in real terms a significant cut will come our way first question around this theme does the panel think that private investment and with that private companies will be on the bonnet of the Thelma and Louise car and quickly jump off before the hit, we hit the cliff is basically the time of starting new companies in healthcare in the UK over because we only have got 12 months left to go or will uh, private money provide a parachute and make uh, or give Thelma and Louise wings and actually uh, make it fly over the cliff what do you think Andrew? I mean, if, if you look at the detail of what's going to happen in investment over the next few years I'm not sure I believe it entirely, but what they're saying is there'll be a lot of disinvestment in secondary care and there'll be a lot of investment in community and primary care. And that's a, an easy thing to say. It's a much more difficult thing to make happen. The, the Tories already retracted that today, they, yesterday. <laughs> All right. Well, there's, I mean, I think if we're going to make some changes, we are going to have to do something about primary and community care, doing more for the patient, 
as opposed to moving them to secondary care. And if you look at last year, you know, there was a, an, an awful, you know, the, the rate of referrals by GPs went up quite, quite dramatically. So my view is that it's still £106 billion of money to spend. I'm only a small company. That's plenty for me to go at. And actually focusing on the things that are required, which is things to happen in primary and community care, the investment in that is going up. So I, I don't think I'd like to be an organisation that was targeting um, sort of uh, capacity in secondary care because I think there will be quite a big squeeze there. But I think targeting other areas of spend um, innovatively is, is going to be an attractive um, proposition. You think you would attract further funding if you expanded your or to the, the next set of process improvement? Yeah, it's something we're looking at right now. Actually, my, my new role um, at Hearst is to actually lead innovation in healthcare, uh, and we're doing that across the, the number of different businesses that we operate in healthcare, both in the United States here and elsewhere. Um, and so we've been looking at this quite, quite a lot of detail, particularly uh, across the world, where every healthcare system, not just the NHS, is facing this exact problem. Uh, so the businesses that you're really looking to get into are ones that are going to drive efficiencies. Uh, and what's really interesting is that actually if you become more efficient, uh, you also seem to become more effective. That drives quality and safety for patient care. Uh, so I think those two things actually go somewhat counterintuitively together, that if you're more efficient, you're actually also more effective. Um, and the technologies that are going to empower that move, if you like, from care in the home, care in the community, empowering GPs, um, following really what, uh, I don't know if people have heard of Clayton Christensen and the Innovator's Prescription. It's a book I highly recommend if you haven't read it. Um, it's about really uh, moving, as we move from what John Bell was talking about, from intuitive medicine, where we kind of have these un, you know, not very good or descriptive taxonomies to much more precision in the medicine. And we tailor systems that empower the generalist, the general practitioner, the community nurse, to actually take on a lot more of the uh, management uh, of patient care uh, by empowering them with knowledge systems. Uh, and then going hand in hand with that are the technologies like wireless. And again, I would recommend, if you haven't watched it, Eric Topol's uh, video on TED. Uh, if you haven't seen that, I highly recommend it about the impact that wireless technology will have on en enabling the uh, new sort of healthcare paradigm. Um, so I think they, it's both uh, businesses that drive efficiency, but also looking at the, the, the enabling technologies like wireless and genomics databases and so on. Before I ask the other side of the panel, maybe so let me just sort of sharpen that question a little bit. So I hear that uh, entrepreneurs still feel that within the NHS money, 100 billion, even if it shrinks or somewhat, there's plenty of business opportunities to help drive efficiencies. As somebody said, um, looking after older patients it's very, it's badly, sorry, well, is very expensive. Looking after older patients badly is unaffordable. Uh, so there must be some efficiencies that we can bring that would then be attractive for investment. However, that means, in a sense, if the total budget declines and private money does not just prop up and make it 100 billion again, but let it go to whatever, 90 billion, that means there will be a competition between NHS internal organization for that budget and whatever private companies will contribute, even if they're more efficient. Do you think that the competition for NHS funding between NHS internal organizations and external investors can be won by enterprise? I may just remind you of Andy Burnham's 
attempt to declare the NHS hospital as a provider of choice and only alternative providers speak um, private sector providers would be allowed in the market if this NHS hospital failed at least on two reprimands so they can botch up the surgery twice but not a third time um, quite quite a remarkable statement but that was attacked and retracted now I think it just didn't withstand any competition um, I think the regulation didn't even get there, but, but it was already fired down. But nevertheless, you can see where the wind blows. Uh, protect your NHS money to NHS providers, and the BMA has a large campaign. Uh, NHS should not only be publicly funded, but also publicly provided. Isn't that a scary kind of prospect for private entrepreneurs who want to be part of that budget? Jake? Um, I've been working, I've been trying to get the NHS to, um, to use the private sector for a variety of different tasks, from uh, direct services, technology, information, infrastructure, for about 20 years now. And, and, and my view is, yes, it's difficult to get them to, 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 to think non-NHS provision. Very difficult indeed, but it is, it's certainly achievable. Um, and I think that the economic crisis is, is uh, probably the best thing uh, that could happen to the NHS over the next three to five years, which is... Uh, uh, not uh, a common view uh, and the reason I think it's the best thing that could happen is that what it will uh, require is a to use that terribly pompous um, phrase a paradigm shift at the moment if you are ill the assumption is that you go to a hospital where they will make you better and actually what we should assume is you don't go anywhere near a hospital unless you have a planned operation that requires the machines that can only be used in that building. And uh, that is what we'll, where we will derive the efficiencies, that we will have to shut um, wa um, beds, wards, and hospitals. Uh, the difficulty we have is the politicians and the public and the press are under the impression that that's a bad thing. Um, actually, that's a, a great liberation and uh, will improve health care and will deliver huge efficiency savings. And whether that's managed by the NHS or by the private sector is, is sort of immaterial in the long run. Uh, I don't think it can be achieved without the private sector participating in that process because the NHS has shown that it cannot do change management very effectively. But it is a great opportunity for the NHS to completely change its relationship with the patient and, and give them the responsibility to look after their health, which is... It's easy to say, hard to do, but it is possible. I, I agree entirely. I, I, I'm actually very optimistic. I think that um, uh, you have to recognise that um, the private sector uh, has always had a major role in delivery of healthcare. The private sector has always built uh, NHS hospitals. NHS doesn't own a construction firm. The private sector has always built uh, uh, NHS hospitals. It equips, it makes the equipment inside the hospitals. It makes the uniforms. It, it makes the drugs. Um, so th th there is always a, uh, to be a, a significant role for the private sector in, in, in uh, partnering with any healthcare system, whether it be NHS or, 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 or any other. Um, and I think I would, would, would uh, again, to sort of echo Jake, in that, that what this will drive is a push towards the consumer having more of a role in actually uh, managing their health care uh, and choosing how they actually uh, uh, um, uh, work alongside, work, work within and, and, and uh, uh, the, the NHS. Um, I'll take the, to take the example of elder care, um, 
uh, in, in the acute sector, uh, you will have at any one time uh, probably about 40% of the beds taken up by elderly, multiple pathology, uh, who do not need to be in that sort of environment. Um, and uh, the, the elderly to date have been prepared to accept that uh, because of a very paternalistic uh, healthcare system. Um, but increasingly, they will not accept that. Uh, and they, they will look for a different sort of environment for their care, uh, and, and uh, ideally care in a home environment. Um, uh, the residential care and nursing home care market in this country is absolutely appalling. Uh, the, the quality of the environments that are provided for elderly in this country is appalling. Uh, and you go to any other developed country uh, and you will uh, see that what can be delivered. Uh, and have, a, have, a, have an interest um, more recently in, in looking at, at, at care village environments uh, where... Uh, and, and this is sort of not, not elderly ghettos, but actually encouraging the elderly to live in an environment where they have some support, they have assisted living, uh, and they have uh, amenities on site. And you can support an individual with their, within their own home right up until their death in that sort of environment. They do not need to be in an institution. They do not need to be in a hospital bed. They do not need to be in, in a wing-back chair uh, in the corner of a room. Uh, and... That, I think that, that innovation will be driven by the private sector actually communicating with the consumer, with the elderly person. As we, as baby boomers, move up, we will not accept that paternalistic institutional care. And, and that, that direct private sector to consumer uh, relationship is going to be critical, and that's what will fill the gap uh, as, as, as the NHS has to do things differently in terms of its resources. I couldn't agree more. Um, and that I take it even maybe a step further in terms of what will happen to the NHS. Mm. And this you know, might be a bit radical but to suggest it, but I, I, I see a time when the NHS would effectively be um, a, a brand uh, and that it sets the standards for the care and the quality indicators and the expected outcomes and that it will actually open up the market to any uh, organisation, either public or private, and if they can show and demonstrate they can deliver to that standard of care and to those long-term outcomes. Uh, so I, I actually see it okay. being a huge opportunity going forward. Before I get the uh, uh, last question around the, the panel here, I just want to w tell you and remind you that uh, we will be then taking questions from the audience to respond to your concerns. So if you want to prepare your question over the next few minutes. Um, one question to the panel has to do with um, well, let me say with an anecdote, I visited Jim Easton, who is now in the NHS sort of the number two person after David Nicholson is charged to make system-wide changes to really revolutionary new transformational changes happen. So when I told him about our uh, way of working with GPs in the Guildford area, he said, Oliver, that's great, but uh, go away with another example of, of excellence. What, in an ocean of failure, failure, that doesn't help. So the NHS is really looking for something that's transformational across the whole um, NHS of England. Uh, the NHS is pretty good at having little examples of good things here, there, and everywhere, but terribly bad at rolling it out anywhere. Now, here we are, a group of entrepreneurs that address specific topics. Many entrepreneurs are even smaller companies than ours. And we complain on the one hand that the NHS behaves like uh, with a big barrier and say, don't tell me little things, come up with a big story. At the same time, 
we do need a change that the NHS can translate and roll out across the country. Is that not a natural tension? Are we saying let all flowers bloom and set sort of some incentives and policies right and then there will be different things happen in different places but hopefully we'll all end up in a better place which then the inequity problem starts up or do we feel uh, innovation should come brought into the NHS maybe by entrepreneurs like us but then there has to be an internal machinery that actually rolls it out. Where, where do you see the tension um, landing in terms for entrepreneurs? What should we uh, contribute? Jake, if I start with uh, you. Um, I went to see uh, uh, a permanent secretary in one of the uh, uh, civil service departments and um, talking about uh, a project for one of the, the companies that I advise, which is a company called Healthcare at Home, which um, pretty much does what it says it does, uh, which it provides healthcare at home. And we were talking to the, this civil servant uh, and other important officials about how we might actually t um, do a regional national pilot to deliver chemotherapy at home on a, a, on a kind of industrial scale. And, uh, and we, showed, we showed the evidence that it was um, uh, uh, safe for the patients for a whole range of therapies which are currently delivered in wing-back chairs in outpatient uh, you know, cancer uh, departments in the middle of towns where it's difficult to park, that it was... Uh, um, the outcomes were good, the, uh, the safety was, was as good if not better, uh, the patient satisfaction was much higher to have uh, regular uh, uh, IV treatment at home and oral chemotherapy. And we also showed the uh, economic argument stacking up as well because it is actually cheaper to deliver uh, care in, uh, at homes. It's, it's a quite a simple conceptual argument which lots of people who run hospitals don't get which is if you're actually caring for someone in the home, you don't have to have the, the hospital. So you're, you've got a saving right there. there. You know, the idea that hospitals are like kind of Fordist factories in which it's efficient because there's lots of people piling in and out of it and you've got the nurses being able to do, do lots of different things isn't true. Anyway, so we could show all of this, these arguments. We said to him, he said, so that sounds great. You know, um, I'll get Gordon Brown to say yes to that. Um, and what would you like us to do? And we said, absolutely nothing at all, thank you very much. Because actually, the moment uh, central government departments, uh, like the National Programme for IT or any other national programme, try to deliver uh, a regional national programme at scale, I'm afraid Jim Easton is going to encounter the same problem. They are destined to fail. Because they are no better at persuading the local NHS to do things than we are in fact, in my view, they're often a lot worse at, at persuading the local NHS to do things than private companies. So actually, my view is, yes, we need uh, things to happen at scale. Yes, we need uh, big interventions, big changes. But I really have no faith in, in, in central government institutions, in what, whatever part of uh, society we're talking about, to be able to pull the levers of performance management in a system and, and, and discover that they're connected to anything. I, I don't think it works, I don't, and I think the less centrally government does, the better. The more it empowers the local NHS to do the right thing, the better. No, I, I agree with that. And, 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 um, <laughs> hey, we've yeah, got our I first know, disagreement. I yeah, yeah. No, I, I, actually, again, you would use an example. A mate of mine um, uh, who's a cardiologist has developed a, 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 
I think, a great program for cardiac rehab uh, using the Wii Fit. Um, and it's, uh, so you have a Wii Fit and a camera and various monitoring, and actually he runs his cardiac rehab in, in, in the home. Uh, and, he, and that's absolutely scalable. You know, um, you could, but as soon as he's, he's, and that's, he runs it on a, on a private basis, uh, had a discussion with uh, local NHS, and the whole risk management uh, uh, bureaucracy came down on him, and, and he thought, this is just too hard. So he had the opportunity of, of actually being encouraged to take this across a very, very wide geography, but it just was too hard. Mm. Thought, I'm, I'm, actually, I'd rather run my little program for 30 hours you know, and, and actually and, and, and get a fee for that and, uh, than actually engage with the, the, the NHS and, and, uh, uh, and, and roll that out. Even though the prize was big, um, it was just, it, it is, in, in his own mind, was going to be just too hard. Mike, yeah, <laughs> it, it is hard. There's no question. And uh, I would say that the, the, the key challenges within a civil service, uh, they are programmed to say no because you can only uh, get fired when you say yes. So you lose your pension <laughs> fund if you say yes to a project and it goes horribly wrong and you embarrass and you get fired yes. and you lose your pension. So I'd say that that's a, a significant problem systematically, with, systemically within any civil service anywhere in the world. Um, we've come across this problem in other countries. Um, we, we work in Denmark and Australia and other parts of the world, and it's, it's, it's not particular to the British civil service. Um, there are some interesting things you can do, though. For example, in Denmark, where a part of their um, bonus pay at, at the civil service level is to do innovation. Uh, and so they actually are incented to do it, mm -hmm. which I think is quite, quite interesting. So it actually took us, within the NHS, coming from within the NHS, uh, four years to get to a national contract eventually. And we actually had sold it through the IT companies who, who understood our argument about defining clinical process and assisting implementation of uh, clinical systems. Uh, it wasn't actually done in a government level, <laughs> which is interesting. Um, but in Denmark, it, it, it took us literally, uh, I think, about six months uh, to get to a first kind of deal and to start working together. And we're still working together. It's still not going to be rolled out. We're still exploring that. But the civil service people were very, very different to work with. And maybe it's a reflection of the size of the country. You know, it's just under 5 million citizens versus 52 million in England. But I do think it had a lot to do with the fact that they actually are incented uh, to do innovation at the civil service level. I think, I see, looking forward, I actually for the first time see there will be a difference in terms of which political party comes in. I mean, for a long time, there's been consensus on the way healthcare should be delivered. But, you know, this Andy Burnham preferred supplier policy, I do think he's getting traction. If you look at the press at the moment, there's a lot about the, the, the union uh, funding of the Labour Party. I, I think I have quite a bit of evidence that says if Labour remains in, then it will be harder for the private sector. I think if the Conservatives get in, they're very much pushing the GP fund holding and going back to the thing we talked about at the beginning where if the GP holds the funds, they think they get more control. Now, personally, I think that's a, that's a very good idea. Um, but I think it won't come in if, if Labour stay in. So I, I actually see, um, for our own organisation and generally, I think there will be quite a big difference depending on who gets in. If it's a hung parliament, then, um, you know, who knows? But I, I certainly think the political landscape will have quite a big impact on... Um, the, the approach, and I know that the 
Conservatives are looking at how they could give real budget holding to GPs, which would be very challenging because you know, you'd have GPs in a sense going bust if they didn't meet the budget and I think they'd, they'd veer away from that. But I mean if we're really going to go to back to the old fund holding mechanism, that would, you know, <coughs> they'd need help and support and some, but it would start to put some uh, real change into the system. I, I, I would disagree with that, having uh, seen what happened almost to the NHS back in, you know, before 1997. Um, when GP founding came into being, the idea of GPs being able to, and I, uh, you know, I'm a doctor, and mm. I, I have no idea about health economics. I'm not trained in health economics. I, I know a little bit about epidemiolo epidemiology and public health, but in order for a GP to uh, effectively fund hold and to effectively do their own commissioning, so to speak, um, the kind of skill sets you need today. Um, is now even more advanced than back you know, in the 90s. And so I would suggest that to try and devolve sort of uh, commissioning down to a, a practice level would be extremely hard. We, we not, 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 not a practice level, at a, at a, at a polysystem level. And would you say that a PCT is doing it very well? No, well, exactly. You and, think and a GP could do it better? No, I think the GPs working with the PCTs could do it much better. And I think that, that uh, commissioning is actually doing that. The good commissioners that we come across out the NHS, Kathy Gritson in the world, is absolutely engaging her, she's the director of commissioning, mm. she's absolutely engaging her, her GPs and the hospital consultants and bringing them around the table and saying, okay guys, how are we going to look out, you know, what does the patient journey look like? How are we going to deliver care now and in the future? So I would argue that, um, you know, I went to listen to Andrew Lansley's talk and, and I was frankly um, very scared by the idea of you know, uh, taking uh, commissioning down a level when we don't have the skill sets yet even to do it at the PCT level. Well, they, would they devolve the PCT capability to the GPs? No, I think, I think the way it can work today is to actually have the commissioners, okay, working with the GPs, and the good ones are doing that, and they need to be given the tools, uh, and which is happening, um, mm. slowly but surely. And we are seeing real differences in patient care. And again, I go back not just the world, to Western Cheshire, to South Devon, where we're seeing real innovation happening at the commissioning level, where the commissioners are working with the GPs. The, the good ones know that they can't possibly deliver without having the GPs and their hospital specialist colleagues on board. And I think it's, it's that holistic system. We might, I, I think it would be a disaster for the NHS to, to fragment, if you like, uh, further. I think that's the last thing. We want to vertically integrate. We want to have the whole patient journey without further silos of care. We've got enough silos of care. What we want to do is bring that all together. Thank you. Um, I could exploit the last discussion for advertising my own company. That's what we do, getting the GP groups to do the commissioning better, but I won't. Um, <laughs> I will, however, invite uh, questions from the audience. And we have the first question there, please. I think there's a microphone coming to you from the back. And if you could just state your name and uh, what organization you're part of for the... Hi, I'm Ami Banerjee. I'm a training cardiologist at the John Radcliffe, and I'm currently working in research in epidemiology. Uh, I, had, I had two questions. Um, the first one for the, the entrepreneurs in the panel who are clinically trained, and then a question for the ones who are non-clinically trained. Um, as, as a training doctor in the NHS structure, um, I think you've alluded to this, that one of the structural or process problems is that there's not um, 
the training or career structure to encourage many of the things that are raised in, during this conference, innovation, public health, um, management. And so the people, the, the clinicians who are interested in these things end up leaving and going to the private sector. Do you see a role for um, new training pathways? You've been talking about care pathways, but is there a role for new training pathways so that training doctors like myself can juggle both balls, so to speak? This, the question for the non-clinicians is, um, and this is more a global issue as, as well as in the NHS, that um, one of the frustrating things, at least that you, you see as a, as a training doctor, is that consultants, as in management consultants, are invited in to manage big issues at nationwide level, which w without maybe consulting people in the shop floor and maybe in-house consulting could have sorted the problem. And you see a huge industry in export of management consultancy or healthcare consultancy to the developing economies and to, and to the middle-income economies as well. And I wondered whether you think that, that um, there's going to be innovation in, in that field or where you see consultancy's role as well. Thank you. Okay. Maybe I'll start with the first question uh, to our clinician. Yeah, I would, first of all, I'd say always you have to follow your passion in life. Um, and uh, that's, that's the, sort of the a priori to doing really disruptive innovation. Um, I think that if you're in an institution uh, that encourages entrepreneurship, that's, you know, so if you are interested in entrepreneurship innovation, uh, I would certainly attach yourself, or uh, that's what I certainly did with, uh, within an institution that you know will encourage and foster that, uh, that idea. Uh, and there will be clinical leaders that are not afraid of people <coughs> doing unusual things and following unusual career paths. Uh, I was able to um, stay actually as an honorary registrar in the NAFA Department of Medicine here for many years, doing uh, a, a day a week, um, you know, thanks to the, the, the kind of environment that, that is available in, in Oxford and the medical school. Um, you know, I haven't now looked after patients for, 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 for many years uh, because it just became impossible in terms of time and so on. But I would say that he, you know, if, you, if you've got a good idea and you, you, you are entrepreneurial in your personality, your outlook, you've got a passion for, for, for helping change systems for good, helping patient, better patient outcomes, um, find yourself an institution, an environment, particularly like at Oxford or UCL or Imperial or Cambridge, uh, or not in and so on that that foster that uh, and that where there's a culture that will allow you to feel that you're being nurtured I think that's really important um, otherwise it can be a very lonely process uh, I, I think um, the other piece is to find uh, colleagues like self particularly in you know MBA programs like in the Sayed uh, and and put together teams networks um, don't be afraid of sort of really participating in a network and sharing ideas uh, what I found is by being very open and by sharing uh, ideas, you actually get a hell of a lot back. Um, so that, that would be my, my advice. If I give my step out of my moderator role as a clinician, um, I mean, I uh, became the head of a department in San Francisco and uh, felt that my job had changed and I had no idea how to be a manager. Uh, but I also saw that simple management changes that I did probably just by common sense 
made a huge impact on the quality of care delivered. So I felt that that actually made more, a more bigger difference to more people's lives than my very specialist knowledge of some very small area where you hardly ever find a patient for. Um, <laughs> particularly in neurology, of course, and some subspecialties. But I think your second part is, should we have a more structured training pathway? Uh, I think it's a little bit like creating a solution that you don't have a problem for. I think you need to first create an attractive career opportunity for doctors in senior management rather than being seen as having gone to the dark side and being looked down upon by colleagues that are still looking after patients. It should be something that people aspire to. That might start with having a medical director of a hospital who has actually real power and influence. An organization I work with in Kaiser in San Francisco, all chief executives, the whole top level were uh, doctors. Uh, they now had, of course, um, skilled managers alongside them, and most of them went to some MBA class at some point in their career as well. Uh, but I think you need to make it first attractive, then people find a way. I myself went to McKinsey for seven years to learn how management works, and instead of paying a business school, they paid me to learn, so I thought it was a good <laughs> deal. Uh, but you need, to have, you need to have the career before, before you have the training scheme. Now, can I ask maybe, um, Jake, you as an experienced consultant right now, yeah. uh, and then, and then uh, Richard also, mm -hmm. because that's your background, mm -hmm. to the second part of your question, what's the future of healthcare consultancy? Now, in the operating framework, um, PCTs are asked to reduce their external consultancy spend by 50%. So that's sort of the market well, backdrop, I, maybe. Yes. I mean, obviously, the paradox of that is many chief executives of PCTs and hospitals who I know are planning to join the management consultancies as soon as they can get out of the NHS. So it seems to me unlikely that uh, in any circumstance that 50% reduction will happen. I, and yes, all, Mark Britton has done yeah, Indeed. So I think, I think the NHS is, um, and like all public institutions, I mean, whether they're governments in this country or elsewhere, use management consultants. And, and I think in the popular imagination, it seems a sign of failure that, you know, shouldn't the civil servants be able to figure these things out without having to bring in McKinsey or, or Bain or whoever to help them work out uh, uh, policy answers? Um, I, I, I think... I think actually governments don't tend to have the read across uh, in terms of data that man big management consultancies have. So I do think they have a role there. I think the, the criticism I would level against uh, some consultants, though not all, is that I think it's very difficult to see the relationship between the recommendations and the follow through. So, you know, um, I would like to see the point at which uh, uh, um, uh, a management consultant was um, identifying the problem with the client. Um, uh, uh, defining how it would be solved and being with that client until it was solved and not being paid uh, until it delivered on the things that it said were possible. Now, that would be quite an interesting uh, uh, concept of consultancy. But, but I, think, I, think, I think some of the kind of criticism and knee-jerk uh, response to management consultancy as evidence in the operating framework, which was, I wonder where they got the idea that they should cut uh, management consultancy uh, spending by 50%. That seems like uh, not a sum that they took any advice on. Yeah. They should have had uh, consultancy advice. Exactly. Yes, yes, to say so much. Yeah. Well, just to pick up on that, on, on that I, I sat for a time as a non-exec on an NHS trust, uh, and, we, had, and we, we were aiming for foundation trust, and we were successful in becoming a foundation trust. And as part of that, Monitor um, gave us um, a... a, a, a a group from a, a, a well-known consultancy uh, to help groom us for, in preparation for a foundation trust status. And we had this report, and it was a, a very large, nice-looking report. 
um, and it showed um, where we could save money. And uh, it actually benchmarked our organization with similar organizations uh, and demonstrated that if we'd actually uh, 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 operated at the top fifth percentile of those across all these different departments, then this amount of money could come out of our system. So my response to that was, well, so you're saying that if we spent less, we'd save money. And that's it. I mean, that's all that that actually demonstrated. By, and it was reams and reams of analysis. You know, if you performed at this percentile, this, and, and benchmarked yourself against this organization in this department, you'd save this amount and this amount. And it didn't get us anywhere. And it's back to your point. Uh, so it's, it's, it's not what, it, it's how. And I, and, and I don't think the... Uh, the healthcare consulting industry in the UK has covered itself in glory over the last uh, few years. It has been a bit of a bonanza time. Uh, and um, rarely does it actually uh, support implementation. Rarely does it actually uh, 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 be founded within an evidence base. Uh, it is, it is opinion-driven rather than evidence-based driven. Uh, and uh, I, I do not think has demonstrated value for money. The future, I think, for, uh, and, and rather than consulting, I would, I would broaden it to sort of more advisory uh, services. I think the future for advisory services is partnering with an organisation and actually help deliver change, uh, whether that be um, so from strategic... Ex exactly right. Uh, and that's, that's where the future is. Uh, and that's not just, that's just, not just uh, here in the UK, but uh, across healthcare systems. But actually... Uh, having the foundation of an evidence base to drive that change. Again, I can't help myself but uh, use the opportunity for hidden marketing. That's exactly <laughs> what healthcare partnership, what we do, is basically work with the GPs and uh, our fees come out of implementing rather than consulting. There was a question back there. The microphone's already... Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I wanted to come back to the question about um, diversity versus a sort of uh, a uniform and e um, equity approach. And in particular, I um, wanted to challenge or just ask Andrew about something that he said earlier about um, not wanting uh, to, to make whole-scale changes. He, he didn't want to pile up things. And I think we ha there's a, a distinction here that, that several people have drawn between uh, technologies that have been evaluated versus processes. I think um, there was, there's been a nice emphasis on the need to innovate in processes as much as we innovate in technologies. I think that's very important. One problem that raises, though, in technologies, we often have a good evaluation process. Drugs typically go through phase one, phase two, phase three trials. There's strong regulation of how that works. Whereas with a lot of process changes, we don't get them um, tested properly, we don't get them piloted, um, and they don't get an evaluation, they just get rolled out. Uh, this is, I, I would like to speak more globally. It certainly happens around the world, but it does happen a lot within the NHS as well. And in particular, a lot of... I'm a, sorry, I didn't introduce myself. I'm a, um, Paul Glazier, GP from the primary care department here. And in talking to a lot of GPs around the country, one of the things I um, get is this sense of change fatigue, um, particularly for things where there's a rollout of some program. It lasts for about six months as the latest fashion. Um, and then it stops and never gets completely implemented and the next change comes through. And there's this continuous thing without them um, ever actually getting done. A much better process, it would seem to me, in that we're piloting in a quality improvement project in Milton Keynes, is to try and get it to work in one place first. Instead of having a good idea, a good opinion about something, let's try and roll it out. And I was actually wondering with, with Richard's example from earlier on about the redesign of the nurses' station. I'd be interested to hear about 
um, the process of, of the evaluation but also the subsequent rollout? Did you do that for all nurses stations or do an evaluation at one ward first? Does it work in this type of ward? Mm. And how did you do that, that rollout and evaluation process? So a question around evaluating process changes. The first part of the question was for Andrew, I think. I mean, uh, if you... What I was making the point was I, I, don't, I don't like these point solutions. If, we, if you look at a big issue in the NHS at the moment is demand management. And, and if you, you can put some point solutions in for demand management. So to give you an example, we put a referral management system in to help the GPs in a particular area to reduce their referrals. Well, what happened was the volume of those referrals went up, but the hospital still charged the same amount of money. Now, therefore, I, I think you've got to do something across the whole spectrum, including you know, the people that are going to A&E. You've got, you've got to do the whole demand across the system. You don't necessarily have to do it across the whole of the country, but you need to put something which is pervasive, not just a, you know, some sort of referral management checking system. Um, I mean, it's something that Oliver and I are, are in accordance with. You know, he's doing a project in Guildford, which I really support, which is trying to get across the whole spectrum of demand is a pervasive and substantive project, therefore everybody's bought into it. Now you always get the problem then that says, well, did you really manage demand? Because actually, what do we compare it against? Do we compare it against what you did last year? Do we care, compare it against what you did last quarter? So I think there are always evaluation problems, but I do think unless you start to do something which is substantive, and at the moment lots of things are put in are small projects which will control something here, but then it will slip out over here. And that's what we see happening is that, you know, if, if a patient doesn't go through that route, they'll find another route through the system. So you've got to put something across the whole piece. Andrew, can I just clarify? You are actually talking about a pilot doing it in a single institution, but at multiple points you're talking about making a system-wide change, but piloting that... Yes, it's still, it's still, it is a pilot, but, in a, but a, you know, a big pilot rather than just trying to say, well, let's just monitor COPD referrals. You know, it's like, let's look at the whole thing that's going on within the system. It might be a small system. It might only be 50,000 patients as opposed to the whole of the NHS. I'm, I'm happy with a, you know, being in an area, but let's do something substantive rather than something minor. On, on, on the uh, nurses station example, uh, we actually took the evidence from uh, the, the, the uh, Mass General in, in Boston. Uh, and through a lot of hard work and, and still have the scars to, to prove it, actually convince the nurses and clinicians in a, in a scheme down the southwest to adopt that. It's under construction, so it's not actually operating yet, but the, but the, um, uh, the proposal is in, in place to actually monitor. Uh, is, it will involve closing an existing hospital uh, and moving those specialties across into the new facility. Uh, so we're collecting data on length of stay, on outcomes now, uh, and we'll be comparing that in, in, within the new facility. Uh, and on the basis of that, we'll be looking to roll that out uh, as, a, as a concept. And it's, a, it's about branding our facilities uh, on the basis of uh, an evidence base uh, to support good design. Uh, and it's something which is, which is not uh, um, uh, effectively de developed in, in the UK, uh, but it, it is in, in other developed healthcare systems. And it's, it's taking that thinking of evidence-based design uh, and uh, inputting it into uh, our thinking and, and, and our facilities. And more importantly, moving away from, because again, we're a bit, a bit of NHS knocking here, bashing here, but um, there, there is a, uh, 
when we, when we bid for projects, there tends to be a forensic analysis around construction costs uh, and cost per square meter, uh, and that our buildings are more expensive than other buildings uh, or the competitor buildings. Um, and yet the construction costs over the life of a, of a, of a healthcare facility will represent between 5 and 8% uh, of operating that facility over its term. Uh, uh, and yet there's this forensic analysis of, of uh, construction costs rather than looking at operational improvement and taking your point, uh, having evidence uh, in terms of process improvement and what that can deliver in terms of efficiencies and having a, a, an infrastructure which supports that uh, and delivers efficiencies over the long term, over the 40-year life of the building, rather than a cost per square meter at the front end. I can add maybe a couple of answers. One to the infrastructure. When I worked at uh, Kaiser in San Francisco, Kaiser has, um, is actually the largest construction company in the United States by now in its own healthcare facilities. Uh, they have um, a research center in Oakland that's basically a theater stage warehouse where they mock up uh, the new health center, uh, bring in the real furniture, have doctors and nurses come and act on patients, and then run the day of a ward. And they came up with a triangle ward and the nursing station was gone and all these kind of things. And the real outcome is not construction costs, but actually operating efficiency in terms of processes, finance, how many people do you need, how often do they bump into each other, and things like that before they do that. And they use that template, so every new construction that they have in any health center has to run through, first through this tri trial phase in the, in the, in the studio, uh, and then the outcome gets part, put into the business plan, and they've made quite a substantial changes in there. Um, the other part is... Um, uh, a bit expanding on Andrew's point. I mean, we run pilots where we help GPs take on a commissioning function, but the point is, Lynn Guilford, we take the entire budget and we can't allow ourselves to squeeze a balloon that pops up elsewhere. Now, it may well be that one can't address every little area with the same level of detail within a year, but at least if you have got KPIs and performance indicators for a particular action, there's still an overarching one, and that's sort of the healthcare outcome overall for the population and the overall healthcare spend. And absolutely right that you can't take uh, individual pilots of only a little piece, ignoring the rest of the system effect. There was a question over here, I think I thought earlier. Hello there. Um, I'm Oliver. I'm a junior doctor who left clinical medicine, and I worked for NHS Innovations London, and now I'm working for London Technology Network. Um, I, thank you for having a really interesting discussion there, but uh, I think my question to Jake and Mike was, you said that it's really hard to break into the NHS, you need to be an established company in order to do so. Um, did you consider um, maybe um, exploring other markets like the private market or another foreign healthcare market to break into that to establish your f yourself first as a company before going to the NHS? And would that be a good strategy? Yeah. Well, um, uh, Dr. Foster did um, uh, expand uh, tentatively into Holland um, and found the experience better, there's no doubt, uh, than dealing in the UK market. But the problem you've got is, well, the problem we had, and I don't know whether it's the same for you, Andrew, is that the, um, the products and services that we had were designed very much specifically for a UK market. So. The, it was, it was, we found a limit on that. So that's a practical. I mean, I think it's, a, I think it's an excellent idea. I think the difficulty you've got is that the, each health market looks similar until you, until you burrow into it, and then they look very different indeed. So it's quite difficult to, to do that unless you've got a very you know, generic uh, product um, to, to approach. I just wanted to mention, just to come back to this idea about um, uh, 
uh, fatigue around new initiatives, which I have a lot of sympathy for. My sister lives in Oxford. You might not see why this is relevant, but bear with me. She lives in Oxford in a, in a qu quite a small house, and she has a very a forgiving husband who's very laid back, uh, Don, uh, here, and he... Um, he says he has one rule for her, that, which is that she likes to bring lots of paintings and objects into the house. And he says, I don't mind you bringing anything in you like, but as long as you put something on the doorstep outside before you bring anything new in. And I think that that would be a very good um, idea for the Department of Health, that when it conjures up a new initiative, it kills an existing one to make room for the new one. So, uh, because I think that that is a real problem. A lot of the NHS spends a lot of its time trying to work out how to fit, to fit in the new initiative to the previous initiative and spend a lot of time writing documents saying it's, it's completely consistent with the last, the DASI review or world-class commissioning or QUIP or whatever the, what the hell it is. Uh, before we take the last question, um, my... Sorry. sorry. To respond, I'd say it's a very, very difficult thing to do. Um, it depends on the product and service, but, but in general I would say that it's going to be a tough thing not to start with the NHS. It, it totally dominates uh, healthcare in, in this country. I think something like 90, over 90% 90 yeah. of all healthcare delivery. So, and I, I think if, it's worth the effort if you can get in, because if you then have the NHS as a reference site, it stands you in very good stead in other socialised healthcare systems. Um, I'd say excluding the United States. Yeah. And many of my personal friends, either from uh, consulting world or as junior doctors who left, uh, have tried that and went, for example, to the Middle East or the United States or the private market in the UK. Yeah. The problem is not a single one has come back to uh, tackle the UK NHS market, so there must be something that you lose them along the way into a more attractive <laughs> world. So, <laughs> Sorry, the last question, please. So, thank you. My name is Chaz Bounder. I work in clinical medicine, but I'm interested in drug discovery. So, I mean, if there was one message I got from this morning is that the NHS is a complete mess. Uh, it's not too surprising that pharma is doing less and less clinical studies in this country, and they're choosing to go abroad. But my question is related to innovation, and a comment I think Jake made uh, early on, that um, most, if not all, innovation occurs in the private sector. Well... If that's the case, Jake, then we have a bit of a challenge. I'm just thinking of Bill Castell's comment yesterday. So when he gave his plenary at the end of the day, he said that he looks on pharma to do the development and the distribution, and he thinks increasingly the innovation is going to have to be done in the academic sector. I also know from having worked in pharma that pharma is increasingly looking to the public or academic sector for innovation. I don't know if you've got any comments on that. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether the academic world is clear which sector it's in. Um, is, it, is it in the public sector? Is it in the private sector? Is it in the voluntary sector? Is it a mixture of all three? And I think the next seminar that we have, we could perhaps talk about the boundaries between the different sectors. But, I mean, it's an interesting point. I agree with, I mean, you're right, of course, the ideas may start in any, any place and uh, can start anywhere and happen all the time in all parts of society. I guess what I, was, what I meant to say was that it's the private sector that turns those ideas into something that is useful, generally speaking. Bill Castell being a very good example, of course, of... Uh, private sector involvement in innovation and, 
and product development. It is 11 o'clock. I promised you to start, uh, stop promptly here, and um, I thank you all for joining, and um, coffee is served in the foyer. Thank you very much, thank everybody you. on the panel.